You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the beast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff, porn, and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Elia and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is March uh, 23rd, 2016. Tonight's guest is Sydney Rivers, uh, a neighbor and young brother who helped our family move here after losing our former residence in the South Carolina thousand-year flood of 2015. Sydney recently went through an ordeal that really encapsulates everything wrong with our system of justice for sale. Tonight, we'll try and tell his story and expose systemic corruption here in South Carolina. A follow-up story on the slave rebellion in Alabama's Holman prison, which resulted in several stabbings, including the warden, has unearthed an issue that, that needs to be addressed. The habit of hiring personnel to work as prison guards and police over a population that they hate and want dead. A prison guard's found diary unveils the type of intense animosity inmates at Holman Prison deal with in Alabama every day from correctional officers like H. Howie Coates. Further, and so the truth has emerged in 2016 and shocked the nation. <laughs> Dan Bombs, writing in support of drug legalization at Harper's, has unleashed a frank 1994 quote from former Nixon policy advisor John Ehrlichman, where he admits he had invented the war on drugs to suppress anti-war left and incarcerate the black population. We told you so is an understatement. The story of an entire prison system, Mississippi, being completely corrupted under the management of disgraced and caught Commissioner Christopher Epps unveils further ties to private prisons and local businesses. It's too dirty for words, but we'll try and give you the information as best we can about a state that should have the National Guard called out to protect the people from enslavement and slavers. Further, some friends of ours in Minnesota representing the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee interrupted a House hearing on reopening Prairie Correctional Facility, a private prison, highlighting strong opposition from some legislators and community members who say the state shouldn't be doing business with Corrections Corporations of America, the prison's 
controversial owner. We'll let you know how it turned out so far. And shout out to Stephanie Megan Brown, who was a participant in that event. Hopefully, she'll be calling in later this evening. Bounty hunters. The only two nations in the there's only two nations in the world that allow them to exist in their borders. Every other country sees them as slave catchers, immoral, unethical, and illegal. But here in the U.S., it's a multi-billion-dollar industry, and with abolitionists at work winning battles and opening minds, the entire industry is afraid afraid they will go extinct. We'll talk about it tonight. An investigation by the Pittsburgh Tribune Review revealed that federal prosecutors declined to bring charges against police in 96% of civil rights violation claims, refusing to pursue or investigate all but a mere 26 cases nationwide each year. Wow, that is amazing. Time is tight tonight, but we really want to bring you important information on U.S. jails that has recently come out. One way or another, we'll share it with you because you certainly need to know. In this week's Rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad segment, we remember the tragedy of Daryl Hunt, founder of the Daryl Hunt Project for Freedom and Justice to help exonerate wrongfully convicted individuals. Daryl began the organization after being wrongfully incarcerated for nearly 20 years and eventually exonerated. Last weekend, the 51-year-old advocate was found dead in a friend's locked pickup truck with a gun in what police have called a suicide. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Julia Ward-Howe, abolitionist, poet, civil rights activist, woman's rights activist, and songwriter, 1819-1910. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. We invite you to join the conversation by calling us at one 641 the extension is 549-032-POUND. Just press star six and one, whatever you want to queue up from the conference line. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. I believe I'm the only one on the line at the moment as far as our host is concerned. Scotty Reed is taking care of something at the moment. And Brother Johanan is, as we know, uh, working his corporate nine to five these days, and it's a little difficult for him to get here at eight o'clock. He should be here shortly. Are you here? Yeah, you hear me? I'm on. Oh, please, brother. Welcome, welcome. There you go. We got your honey on the line. What's happening, brother? How was your week? Man, it's been busy. You know how, I mean, the work of the abolitionist, brother, is never done until slavery is dead and gone. So, you know, we stay busy 24-7. Yeah, man. Yeah. Can you find a way to turn up your mic just a little bit or your phone? You're a little low. All right. There you go. All the same. As I was saying, uh, yeah, it's just busy all the time, man. I mean, we've been planning the program. Uh, sorry about that. That was my microphone. Uh, you know, we've been planning the program, you know, all week since last week and uh, even, you know, discussing it and kind of laying out the, the format and all of that. And still, even now, when I come in the door, I got a brand new link in my inbox that I didn't even know this was going down. I guess now Ken Thompson then came out and said that uh, Peter Liang don't need to go to prison. He just want to give him house arrest for killing a guy early. Wow, that pretty- that just came in. So I mean, we never get past the BS, man. What happened right. to Ken Thompson? Exactly. Uh, maybe he's just compassionate to a fault. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I guess. So, and on top of all the stories we got, I mean, that to me that was like a bit of a bombshell. There, I mean, damn, we we just had the Asian Americans uh, coming against us and saying we want to. 
We want white power. We don't want an Asian cop to go to jail for killing these Negroes. All these mm. white cops getting off. We want to get off too. This is wrong. But you know, there's a lot of black cops out there that's doing the same thing, and we hold them just as accountable as we hold anyone else. Right. I mean, why should anybody be right from this or treated any differently? If you've done it, you've done it. I mean, black isn't cops. the case where, the, where the, he shot him in the hallway mm-hmm. when he was getting mm-hmm. his hair braided by his girlfriend? Right, Roman right. Around in these dark hallways of, uh, with his gun out. Mm-hmm. I mean, their mistake cost somebody their life. And now you did, they want to get this guy house arrest? Come on, man. If that was any one yeah. of us, oops, there it is. We'd be in prison. Right. Like all these black uh, cops and corrections officers and probation officers and everybody else associated with law enforcement, the people of color, they're going to prison. They're doing time. Yeah. Man, you know, I can, as I said, I can sympathize uh, where they're coming from and how they feel about it. You know, making one person of color as an example uh, for to pay for these uh, the acts that they commit uh, in regards to how many they don't do to their white counterparts. Uh, they feel some kind of way, but again, we are holding everybody responsible. You and I talked about this in private last night. It's really not a matter of race. As Scotty said over and over again, it's just not a matter of race when it comes to ending this, because we there are wrong on all sides. And we'll be talking about one tonight with Christopher Epps, for example, you know, and the businessman that we're reporting on. Now, I know it's no coincidence that more often than not, many black faces are pointed out as the culprits. I know that's no coincidence. Nonetheless, there are those who are responsible. Yep. And you see, once again, you see these folks are, are, are going down like dominoes down there associated right. with it. And so far, they're primarily uh, people of color. You got to see some McCrory is involved in it, but we don't know what kind of sweetheart deal he's working out behind the scenes because we know Epps is, is singing like a bird because the, the chips. I think when that initial indictment came down, it was like a, I think it might. I think they said it, it was a like a forty-nine count indictment that named, you know, a couple dozen people in it. So we still haven't even gotten like breaking headline news on how many people, who, who you know, who they are, how they're attached to this, what their names are, and all of that. We just know the main names that they're letting out one at a time, and now this guy is the next one in in the lineup. So, I mean, it's slow justice. It's um, piecemeal. And uh, while I'm talking, let me pull up the link. I, I guess that's how we start the program is with that story, right? Uh, sure. Why not, man? All right. Here we go. Uh, WJTV. Biloxi businessman pleads guilty to charges in prison contracts kickback scheme. So, again, as we reported over the last year, um, almost, a, almost a calendar year, um, Christopher Epps, the former uh, corrections commissioner for the state of Mississippi, uh, served, uh, over 30, I think 30 plus years, the longest serving state, um, uh, state head of any department, uh, served over the prisons for th- over 30 years or what have you got caught up last year, him and Cecil McCrory, where they were doing no bid contracts where they're, they're enriching these corporations, uh, that, that handle the commissary and handle, you know, the personal items and the necessities of life that these people have to have. They get the prices jacked up through the roof, and it's a no-bid contract. They get all the deals across the state, all the prisons, whatever. For this, uh, uh, Christopher Epps was uh, giving these deals away for around, I think, what did he say? It was like, he was getting like 12000 or something, a pop from uh, McCory? 
Uh, yeah, uh, uh, much more than that. He made up uh, several million dollars. I think the last thing he was trying to get was a new condominium in addition to the one he had already gotten from them. And mm-hmm. condominiums don't come at 12000 a pop. So, you know, he was making some serious right. deals with these people, uh, for right. sure. So he was going you bank know? to That's what it was. He was going bank to bank trying to deposit the money in sums that was somewhere around that amount, trying to keep it off the radar. Right. In a flat out uh, special report, she uh, went into detail about that and showed it in a map how he was going from bank to bank over the course of a couple of hours, depositing $9,990 in each bank. <laughs> he did about eight banks in a row. Just retarded, man. So he's already done. He's went down as soon as they came to his house to get him. I remember they also said they confiscated his Benzes. He went the very next day and bought his wife another brand new Benz. I mean, this is what we're dealing with. Um, so he's gone. McCrory's gone. So now this is a new story. Biloxi businessman accused of being a part of a kickback scheme involving prison contracts appeared in court Thursday. 60-year-old Robert Simmons pled guilty before U.S. District Judge o- Ozerden. He is accused of carrying out a kickback scheme in which he paid money to former Missouri, De- uh, Missouri Mississippi Department of Corrections uh, Commissioner Christopher Epps and to a Harrison County supervisor in exchange, Cecil McCrory, I'll tell you his name, former uh, school, uh, what was he, former school? Um, the head of the Board of Education at one point. He was a right. judge at one point. He was a legislator at one point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that guy's name was Cecil McCrory, the other person that they chose not to name. Um, officials said that from 2012 through August 2014, Simmons was paid $4,000 a month as a consultant for Sentinel Offender Services, LLC. Since 2012, Sentinel was under contract with the, with the Mississippi Department of Corrections to provide services to aid in the monitoring and managing of offenders sentenced to probation or parole. So this is a part of that continuum of care. Uh, as they see that uh, abolitionism is, is bringing this awareness and people are looking for reform still, and we're talking about abolitionism, but as they see that the tide is changing and they can't continue to just keep throwing all these people away, they've got to reduce the roles. Well, what they're doing is taking over control of the aftercare as well, the, the probation right, right. and the mental parole health and all of this. Is, uh, mental health and all of that. They're, they're moving right. in that uh, area, including real estate. Right. So this is a prime example of one of those kind of cases, the prison system working hand in hand with the people that aren't that, that aren't even inside the walls anymore, still getting slave slave labor out of them, I'm sure, and still threatening them with going back to the plantation, and of course collecting fines and fees from them. And if they can't pay it, they're going back in. So, um, so this Sentinel off Offender Services LLC was getting these uh, free contracts. Simmons deposited a portion of his monthly pay, a kickback of fourteen hundred dollars, directly, <laughs> damn, directly into Epps's account. That's horrible, man. You're already getting all this money, and you still got to take another 1400 a month from somebody else you tied into the scheme. I mean, damn, that's criminal. Officials said that uh, that AJA Management and Technical Services provided construction management services to Mississippi Department of Corrections for the construction of the $40 million. Now, see, people, this is what is going on here. These fools... These the black folks involved in this is getting caught up over ten and twelve thousand dollars, fourteen hundred here, four thousand there, a new Benz, a little little you know little extra money, and they look like they, like you say you go buy a condo or whatever. The people whose names haven't been named in this yet get a forty million dollar expansion to the Walnut Grove Youth Correctional Facility. So these are the people that's getting the real money. 
During those 18 months, Simmons received a monthly consulting fee from the AJA of $10,000. Every month, a portion of Simmons' consulting fee was also paid to Epps. From 2005 to 2011, Health Assurance LLC contracted with the Harrison County Jail to provide inmate medical services. The owner of Health Assurance LLC allegedly paid Simmons a consulting fee, which at the end of the contract was as high as $10,000 a month as well. During this period, Simmons made monthly payments in the amount of $2,000 to a Harrison County supervisor for assistance in, in providing securing, oh, in, for assistance that he provided in securing the contract at the Harrison County Jail for inmate medical services, according to officials. Public officials soliciting and receiving bribes and kickbacks cannot be allowed to violate the public trust by participating in the expenditures of funds provided by taxpayers in support of government projects and contracts, said Acting U.S. Attorney Britain. These projects must be awarded honestly and transparently. Public corruption investigations like these are a top priority for the FBI because those who would betray the public's trust and confidence for self-gain undermine the very fabric of our democracy, says Don Alway, special agent in charge of the FBI's Jackson, Mississippi Division. So there you have it. So what are we dealing with, folks? We're talking about, you know, I'm looking through Mississippi is Ferguson, so I can share it on New Abolitionist Radio. Oh, yeah. yeah. People understand what's going on in here. Remember that all these contracts involved require these prisons be filled with people. Be filled with people. And usually with CCA or other contractors such as them, and Mississippi has four private prisons, uh, with those type of contracts, it's 80 to 100% guaranteed occupancy. But they go well and above that. They're overachievers. In uh, Mississippi, they have a large uh, prison overpopulation issue. Uh, I'm not quite sure what it is at this point, but there are some facts that I can tell you about it. Like 180% over, 180% to capacity? Uh, yes, it's something like that. I believe Alabama has 200%, and Mississippi mm-hmm. is not far behind them as far as prison occupancies right now. And Mississippi on top of each other. And we also know right. that in Mississippi is where a federal judge came out and toured one of the juvenile detention facilities, which was under Commissioner Abbott's jurisdiction, and determined that it was a cesspool of unconstitutional violations. Like straight up criminal acts on children being occurred. And this is under his watch because he's using these people in order to have those quotas filled in order to get these uh, these contracts as profitable. So, you know, the government will pay or the state will pay their money for you to incarcerate these people. Uh, a quick fact, one in 38 adult Mississippians is either behind bars or under correctional supervision. In 1982, the figure was one in 105. That's a big difference. That's huge. One in right. 38. So what we're dealing with, man. I just want this uh, to see how they continue to connect the dots. And, again, this is another case, in my opinion, until they prove otherwise of how the system works to uh, protect you, the more money you contribute to you know, to the to the dirty deeds is being done. I mean, so far we've seen basically dumbasses that are greedy for gain on on basically a peon level. You know, when you're talking about a forty million dollar expansion to one to one facility, and Walnut Grove has been condemned for years 
the murders that go on in there, the, the rapes that go on in there, the inhumane conditions that go on in there. All of the advocacy groups, ACLU, FPLC, on and on and on, have condemned this facility is not even being worthy to be open. It's been privately owned. It's changed hands. I mean, every kind of scandal imaginable. imaginable. And what do they get? A $40 million expansion project that we don't even know whose money, whose hands that money went into and who all ate from that trough. Who all got up there and got a plate and got a big old stack of money that will make that little funky little $10,000 a month look like straight up chump change that it is. And right. these fools are the ones going to prison, though. And these other folks is in the wind somewhere. On, on, and, and probably the people that's above them are probably operating in, if not other Mississippi prison affairs in other states and doing the same things. And, and they making millions and millions every shot. I mean, it's just the scope of the corruption is well, further, just to point out how bad it is in Mississippi, Mississippi has the highest incarceration rate in the United States, with 40% of its inmates held in private prisons. Since 1980, states have been contracting with private prison operators to help reduce costs and expand debt capacity, which has led the U.S. contracting 10% of its 2.3 million prison population out to private prisons. Now, in Mississippi, 40% of the prisoners are in private prisons, and they cut every corner. They don't provide you with the proper medical aid. They deny you uh, uh, treatment like they're doing in Alabama, for instance, that article you showed me earlier. Uh, they'll cut down your food consumption to where a plate is worth somewhere around 35 cents per plate. Where uh, And, you know, like the brother that went to jail out here in Sydney, where they feed you turkey all day long because the sheriff owns the turkey farm. <laughs> Anyway, man, there you have it. That's our yeah. Christopher Epps story is going to be unfolding for years to come. Uh, <laughs> for years to come. They threatened yeah. him with 266 years in prison. Uh, he started singing like a bird, and it may even yeah. go all the way up to the governor. Good. Good if it does. To the governor and all his all the folks that contributed to his campaign, find out everybody that's guilty and dirty in the whole thing. This is part of what we're talking about as well. When you start talking to folks about revolution, when we start talking about the system, you know, being just straight up abolished itself, these are the types of people we're talking about. I mean, not just these low lying dummies that just get caught up over something shiny. We're talking about people like the governor and then going into who contributed to his campaign. What did they get out of these? I'm 150% positive that you can follow the money. All the way up the line to corporate heads and people sitting on boards, CEOs and, you know, whatever that, that will never have their name attached to any of this stuff. That's why they contribute the money they do. That's why they play on the level they play on. So their name don't get in the headline because they're affecting all kind of jobs and stock prices and everything else. Can you imagine if they name some names of people who, you know, full well had their hands in this kind of mess? Uh, anyway. Terrible, man. And, you know, that leads to the other story that's coming up, too. Uh, what's going on? A follow-up on the Alabama story where they had a slave rebellion just uh, a little over a week ago. Uh, it lasted several days. Two uprisings involved 70 prisoners uh, being locked in. The warden got stabbed uh, during this uh, uprising that happened over, over there, and they came out with particular demands, the decent demands that we, you know, are reasonable and just that we aired on New Abolitionist Radio last week. Well, more news to that is now 
they have discovered this diary of sorts of one of the guards there. And the things that he writes in this diary just makes you have to wonder how we can even allow it to happen. When we put people in positions of power over our population, uh, whether it be police, prison guards, probation officers, judges, prosecutors, whatever, who harbor hate for an entire group of people to the point that they wish them dead. And they feel it so strongly that they have to write that shit down. Like, it's got to come out of me. i got to write it down or start popping people in the head. How can we not, how, how can we just allow this to continue? I'll give you an example, and I posted it on New Abolitionist Radio, the link. Uh, some of the transcriptions from his diary say, quote, I hate inmates and won't do anything for these motherfuckers. Besides what is allowed by the state correctional facility and state laws, nothing else. The thought of getting too friendly with inmates makes me feel physically ill. These monsters are here for a reason, and you need to remember where you came from and who raised you. Rest in peace, Papa. And then he goes on further to say, today I'm still shaken up by the thought of having my career uh, over graham crackers. It kills me. These stupid inmates are trying to get someone fired over something small. What Sergeant Billingsley said about inmates are true. They are animals. If they can't get something out of you, you're unless to them, and you can be replaced or worse hurt. Inmates don't even care about their family unless they can get something for nothing. I just found out the dirty-ass officer told them I was bringing shit in. I would never, ever give up my freedom or my life for some piece of shit in me. It would kill me if I got with them. And I'm just going to close it with his, uh, one more quote from this guy, and then we can probably take about it. This is from H. Howie Coates, who is a, uh, employed as a correctional officer in Holman Prison right now. I hate what I remember. This guy's writing this, and he's some of it is scribble. It goes, I hate the most our enemies. I get the feeling sometimes to shoot them all and not feel bad about it. Annoying insects that should be killed off the face of the earth and finally judged for their sins once and for all. This is an employed individual right now who is in someone's face as we speak. There you have it. Well, as most uh, people will say, unfortunately, uh, hey, if you don't you don't like it, don't do crime. That's I mean that's the that's the patent response to this type of thing. It's not even a matter of talking about what kind of a psychopath do we have, you know, and how and how widespread is this type of sentiment reflected? I mean, we know that this is the over the overarching attitude as we report right, we all the, the time campaign shows it to be true yeah yeah so we report all the time about all the people that get murdered in custody that get beat to death in custody that get abused and, and neglected and and of course the psychological warfare that goes on hell we just saw uh saw our brother uh, uh name just threw out the angola three uh brother just got out most recently Fox. um yes what Fox? We we just saw him come out just, I mean, he, 40 years. I mean, you got to have the same kind of psychopath mentality as what we're hearing in these diary entries is the persons, the person and persons who sat up here and went generation after generation 
father to son to grandson handing down, hey, keep that one in that box all day, all night. And nobody ever questions it. Nobody ever stands up, speaks up. I mean, so so to me, this is a this attitude reflects what must be the prevailing attitude in all of these places. It is, Johan. And um, let me chime in here. This is Scotty. Greetings oh, to oh, everyone. Scotty. Peace, Scotty. Peace. Um, that attitude has been reflected over the past couple of days by the statements by the CEO of USA Inc., President Barack Obama, in criticizing, lobbying, you know, uh, underhanded bomb after bomb after bomb towards the human rights record of Cuba. And, you know, I never lived in Cuba. Um, their incarceration rates are uh, pretty bad, but they are not higher than the United States. And their population isn't as big. And I do know that they're, they do wage the drug war. So they do lock up people for drugs and stuff like that. So, But nowhere on the level that we see here in the United States, and as you're highlighting the use of uh, solitary confinement, which is known by the international community as being a form of torture. I think I read an article, correct me, I'm sure you guys may have seen the headlines as well, but somewhere upwards of 80,000 people, adults in the United States, are held in solitary confinement at any given time. And so for, you know, the president to to be so hypocritical and blatant, blatantly so, you know, was just very disturbing uh, to me. And I, I heard him earlier today say that Cuba, you know, I just left a country uh, that has a police state where in response to Ted Cruz comments about, you know, uh, p using the police and passing special laws to put lock put the uh, Muslim communities on lockdown to keep them from being radicalized. But, you know, slavery and the policies of slavery is enough to radicalize people and people are radicalized to different degrees. We've been seeing people by the tens of thousands on the street protesting the police state that exists here in America. But again, you know, it is important, you know, to understand where most of the masses get their attitudes from. You know, they get them from people like Michelle Obama, from President Obama, from Hillary Clinton, you know, Bernie Sanders, just these Donald Trump, you know, these name brand people that the uh, media uh, puts out there. And so, you know, when we accept or want to act like it, uh, human rights, serious human rights violations aren't existing here in the United States because we want to think this is some kind of, you know, high school football game and we're picking sides and, and what have you. I mean, it's just very shameful. Thank you. Indeed, man. Uh, let's take our first a break. Um, when we come back, we're going to switch over and we're going to talk about some of the roots of our issues with slavery in the 21st century, where they came from and how they came to be. And a bombshell that's come out recently, which shows you in no uncertain terms, it was all set up. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with Scotty Reed, Max Parkes, and Johanna Elia. We'll be right back after these messages. Tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for podcasts and live program scheduling. Visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com.
Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Scotty and Johanna, and for our listeners, just a heads up and an update. We're going to do a little switch today with our guests. We were going to bring in uh, one of the sisters that was involved in uh, the protests in Minneapolis against uh, the private prison CCA in next week, but this week we're going to have her call in. She's supposed to call in when we get to her story, uh, a couple stories away, and we'll bring in the young brother next week. Uh, we asked him if he could switch, and he's agreed. So we'll be working it out that way. All right, Scotty? All right, well. If I understand you correctly, if I understand you correctly, I should watch the board. Uh, how long from now for our guest to call well, in? When we get to the story regarding Minneapolis and the protests, she'll be calling in there. Okay, all right. All right. Um, the story we're coming out with now, is, is, I told you so, it's just like an understatement. We've been trying to explain to you now for five years how legalized slavery has come to be. On more than one occasion, we pointed out the war on drugs being the initial conditions presented by and managed by Nixon, the creation of the DEA. These things were put into play not in a way to fight or combat any sort of crime, but as a reply to the rebellions of the 60s against the Black Liberation Movement and the Civil Rights Movement. Nixon was a professed racist, and this was what he could do as the United States president. The first president, as a matter of fact, of a force to do to resign in disgrace. Anyway, the story comes out um, from, they're all over the place, mind you. We've got one here I'm going to read from Vox, but if you just do a quick Google, you'll see it comes up with all kinds of different titles and descriptions. As a matter of fact, I should read some of the titles that people have come out with because it's such a bombshell. Nixon policy advisors admit he invented war on drugs to suppress anti-war and blacks. Uh, then they go on to say, uh, let me see, got a couple of more here. Now we're in this new abolitionist page, and there's so much stuff here. Nixon official, real reason for the drug war was to criminalize black people and leftists. And it's just so many different titles, even some that say allegedly. Like, you know, it's not right there for anybody to read. Let me go on the box. Box says the war on drugs. It is a genuine public health crusade on attempt to carry out what author Michelle Alexander characterized as the new Jim Crow and what new abolitionists call modern-day slavery. A new report by Dan Baum by, by Harper's Magazine suggests the latter, specifically Baum refers to a quote from John Ehrlichman, who served as domestic policy chief for President Richard Nixon when the administration declared its war on drugs in 1971. According to Baum, Ehrlichman said in 1994 that the drug war was a ploy to undermine Nixon's political opposition, meaning black people and critics of the Vietnam War. At the time, I was writing a book about the politics of drug prohibition. I started to ask Ehrlichman a series of earnest, wonky questions that he impatiently waved away. You want to know what this was really all about? He asked with the bluntness of a man who, after public disgrace and a stretch in federal prison, had little left to protect. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin 
and then criminalize them both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Do we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Quote, unquote. This is an incredibly blunt, shocking response, one with troubled implications for the 45-year-old war on drugs. You can read the rest of it on New Abolitionist Radio. And as I said, there's dozens of articles. The world is abuzz with disinformation. Brothers? Hey, like you said, we told you so. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> these things have been more like uh, information that investigators, uh, truth seekers, people that do, you know, the, the work of abolitionists, um, maybe authors, you know, people that are going to do research. This has been something that, you know, you would have to dig to find in the past, in the recent past. But, you know, this kind of a revelation is is just confirmation of all the information that, that we've amassed over the years that has pointed to the exact same conclusion. So to get the quote is just, I mean, it's cherry on top of a, of an ice cream sundae that you already made if, you, if you've been doing the work. So I don't know. I mean, what do you think in this day and time, though? I mean, I think it's relevant that, you know, like with the presidential campaign right now, we know what Hillary Clinton had to do with, you know, and her husband had to do with uh, incarcerating more of these said black folks and really any Americans than any other president ever before or, or since so far. And we know, you know, what the Trump campaign has made itself out to be all about with you know, polarizing and, and basically white supremacy, you know, is, is all they're really you could really hang your hat on. So, I mean, with this kind of a revelation coming out, I mean, what, what, do you think this falls on deaf ears in this country at this time, that this man is telling you this? You know, they go a little further in the story. So I'll let Her Ehrlichman, uh, Dan himself, he says it in no uncertain terms is going on. Vox here has a chart. And on the chart, they show that 9.5% of whites use drugs and 10.5% of blacks use drugs. Now, mind you, Blacks are only 13, less than 13% of the entire population. Drug-related arrests per 100,000 residents of each race, for whites is 332, for blacks is 879. 879 to 332. Ehrlichman claims this was the goal of the drug war, not an unintended consequence. And Baum cites this is one of the many reasons to end the drug war once a ball. I think we need to go further than just ending a drug war. These are crimes against humanity, and someone needs to be held responsible. Somebody has got to get out of the picture because we can't negotiate with slavers. If we're going to allow them to continue to do business as usual, then they run the country just as Frederick Douglass predicted they would. I got a, a bit of history, history information uh, on a side note about why um, Nixon might have been angry with black people because in the 1950s when he was the vice president of Dwight Eisenhower and, um, you know, they were known to be, quote unquote, uh, friends of the civil rights community. He actually knew Martin Luther King Jr. But then during the campaign that he was running for president against uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, Martin Luther King got locked up. And this is during a campaign. And so, uh, you know, neither one of the campaigns really wants to be seen as the friend of the Negro, if you get my drift. And so Nixon never did reach out to them. And uh, even though 
uh, especially with Robert Kennedy, he was very angry when without his consultation, um, they had some some of the other aides had John F. Kennedy call uh, down to I think what state was that? It, I think it was Mississippi, Alabama. It might have been Alabama. Where, yeah, Alabama. And so anyway, he calls down there, which leads to um, uh, Dr. King's release. And so black people all of a sudden then started seeing uh, Kennedy and the Democrats as a friend to the Negro when, in fact, they their record for the past hundred years or since Reconstruction had been exact opposite. And, and John F. Kennedy, uh, just that master stroke of just calling him from looking at it from a political perspective. So, you know, Nixon could have a vendetta against black people because, you know, y'all voted for that Catholic. You know, they Irish Catholic man for president over me, you know, and, and for, I mean, people is petty like that. So I wouldn't even put that past him on top of him being, you know, a racist who believe in the myth of white supremacy. I know he was a racist. One of the things that, if not these things, he hated more than anything else was half breeds. As a matter of fact, his support for Roe versus Wade was testimony to that. At one point, he says, there are times when abortion is necessary. I know that. When you have a black and a white, says Nixon, oh, President no. Nixon's words, chilling as they are, also a general reflection of the moral logic shared by millions of Americans that, in that time. And at one point, when asked about the voters voting for Roe versus Wade, he said, I believe, I think he was talking about Michigan, the voters of Michigan will uh, vote in favor of this because they know that it will be the half-black bastards being aborted. He had the same fear all white supremacists have. That we're going to see a little bit of three babies. Yeah. You said Nixon said all of this? Nixon said it. And so we had to deal with more than one genocide. Abortion was a secondary attempt at genocide, specifically right. helped put into place by Richard Nixon and also uh, one of the Supreme Court judges, uh, I believe it was Ginsburg, who said, frankly, I had thought at the time Roe was decided there was concern about population growth and particular growth in population that we don't want to have too many of. So the Roe was going to be then set up for medical funding for abortion. These people were trying to kill off black people and they hated half breeds above everything else. Damn. Damn, man. I don't even know what to say about that. That's wow. Just when you thought you knew it was bad. This was all happening in uh, around the same three, four year period of time. And uh, because of the initial conditions created by Richard Nixon with the DEA and the war on drugs, we saw an immediate increase in incarceration rates, even though just like many other enactments by presidents, crime was on the decline at the time. Wow. Well, as uh, as we all know that, you know, this has been a, a vehicle for not only uh, Nixon and, and his goals. I mean, and how short sighted is that? I mean, when you're talking about the, the repercussions that have gone on the last 40 years and are going to continue to go on into the foreseeable future, even with our best efforts and growing, uh, growing uh, uh, masses of people that are aware and understand and I mean, even affecting our current presidential campaign. I mean, when you really look at the weight and the heft of the pressure that the war on drugs puts on our society's very existence, 
I mean, I'm being very serious right now. I mean, this this thing is pressure on many aspects of our society, of us even being able to sustain a society. The money that it takes, the people that it steals away, the violence that results, the addictions, the, the untreated illnesses, the, I mean, on and on and on. Just from this one ad, excuse me, just from this one fool's short-sighted, bigoted goals of doing whatever he was trying to do with his administration that he knew could only last for so long, I mean, at, at, at most eight years. He's affected us for the next 50 years. Wow. Yes, progressively got worse. Uh, you know, we're all talking about the Clinton campaign right now and how their uh, tough-on-crime laws and three-strike laws were all tied in coincidentally with the uh, initial public offering of Wackenhut Corporation, which is a sure. private prison corporation, and which is now uh, the Geo Group, one of the largest privately owned prison companies in the entire world. Uh, yep. That was no coincidence that their stock rose by 10 times within the four-year period of time between 94 and 98, while they were out trumping about the tough on crime laws. And Hillary Clinton was declaring that our children were super predators who needed to be brought to heel. Mm. So these are the conditions that have created modern day slavery as we know it today. I mean, anybody that hears the, uh, just someone say to you that in my lifetime, I've seen it go from less than 200,000 prisoners nationwide to 2.4 million. That is beyond belief. Wow, man. Wow. Well, I know we got we well we got a little extra time, but we probably need to move on. I mean, how can how yeah, how can you really get on our next story, man? And uh, our next story, if you want to pull it up, it's uh as I said, it's the protesters interrupting the hearing on reopening private prison bills out in Minnesota. And you know, we got some allies and listeners out in Minnesota. Nikima Levy Pounds, for instance, she's also weighed in on the circumstances here. And uh, a few of our friends and listeners are also involved. And apparently, when this uh, hearing came up, they decided to do something about it, even if it's only be heard. Maybe, uh, I believe the next day there were 16 people that attended in protests and talked about why this prison shouldn't be open. Uh, I'm not sure if any of them were there, but we'll find out. Hopefully, she's calling in uh, at some point during this story. You want to read it for us, Sean? Sure. This is from uh, StarTribune.com. So. Uh, a local paper that, that, that covered the story here. Protesters interrupt hearing on reopening private prison. The bill still advances. So we're seeing, before we even get into this, we're seeing the same trend, people. The same trend. I mean, this is why I uh, ask people that are all about, and I'm not saying don't vote, but I'm just saying, when you talk about voting, you know, what is your agenda? What is your demand? What are you putting in front of these candidates and making sure that they got your back so if you give them your vote, they're going to do what you said you need them to do. Now we see again another city, another uh, metro area where folks are coming out. They're aware. See, we're doing our job. Awareness is out there. We're doing what we're supposed to do, getting more folks to know what's happening. People are waking up and seeing what's going on. It's the age of information, so they're not able to just sneak in and do what they used to do. Seattle fought for years. The people were coming down to the meetings, and eventually when the vote came down and the corporation said, we're going to do what we're going to do, they start putting the protesters in jail, taking them out of the city council meeting and arresting them and passing the vote to go ahead and build the youth facility where the people said we've already got a plan where we're going to build a recreational center for the youth to have some kind of activities to keep them out of trouble in the first place. The people, the city council told them, we don't care what you want to do. 
we're building a for-profit prison for these kids. Here we go in Minneapolis, same thing. Protest is interrupting this this uh, private prison hearing, and they still pass the bill. So uh, the, the debate over a plan to lease and reopen a privately owned prison in Swift County quickly escalated into chaos Tuesday, leading legislators to temporarily clear the meeting room after dozens of protesters interrupted the proceeding. A contentious Minnesota House hearing signaled an uncertain path ahead for the Prairie Correctional Facility proposal, highlighting strong opposition from some legislators and the community members who say the state shouldn't be doing business with CCA, the prison's controversial owner. CCA has a terrible reputation nationally for their treatment of prisoners, says Nakima Levy-Pounds, president of Minneapolis chapter of the NAACP, and our abolitionist sister, who has come on this program several times and backed up everything we said and taught us plenty that we didn't know. Peace to her. Doing business with the CCA is like doing business with the devil because their practices are diabolical. Bill author Rep. Tim Miller, the uh, he's a Republican from Prinsburg, emphasized that the Department of Corrections would run the prison under his proposal to lease the facility, not CCA. CCA isn't going to be operating it, he said. Whether CCA has a good or bad practices really isn't an issue right now, which demonstrates his very keen understanding of the situation because CCA is what we've reported on this program before, is what they call a real estate investment trust. So that gives them the power to either build and own or buy and take over control of facilities or just simply manage facilities, whatever they want to do. But this all gives them certain tax protections and certain designations on Wall Street to be able to be traded in a certain manner. So with that said, they can start the contract in a management-only capacity. But I can guarantee you we will hear on the next uh, uh, CCA earnings, quarterly earnings call, they will tell you. And uh, the facility in Minnesota, uh, we're going to go ahead and, and uh, move forward with uh, from a management capacity into full ownership in the in the third quarter of the coming. I mean, this is how they operate. They just need to get their foot in the door. And this idiot, Tim Miller, who knows what he's getting out of it, but he's sitting up here lying to the people saying, but he's not really lying because he's telling them what he knows. Whether they're good or bad doesn't really matter right now. If we could just pass and get them in here, we'll worry about that later, how they trick us and how they switch it around and happen later. After hours of passionate testimony, the bill ultimately passed its first test by a 10-7 to 7 vote in the House Public Safety Committee, advancing the proposal to Ways and Means. Critics shut down the hearing, though. So right now, Minnesota faces overcrowding in all of its state prisons, which has forced the state to house 2,400 overflow inmates in county jails since 2014, which itself is illegal on some level that we've reported on this program in the past. You cannot take these people out of state prisons and put them in the county jail. That jurisdiction don't even fall into place. And who's getting the finance? I mean, all of these things are twisted and, and dysfunctional. Anyway, a I mean, measure Sheriff, that the DOC officials... What's that? No, I was going to say, um, we do have uh, some callers on the line. Oh, okay. Um, but I just want to read some selected passages because sometimes that's all okay. you need to do and pay attention. Yeah, think, but, yeah. but let me read these uh, passages from an article about this. Uh, Bill author Representative Tim Miller, a uh, Republican out of, I think this is Prinsburg, uh, said leasing mm -hmm. Prairie Correctional will provide an immediate solution to overcrowding and buoy the region's depressed economy. Uh, here's another passage. Switch County residents and government officials attempted to give public testimony in support of the bill and its potential as a job creator. Uh, Roxanne O'Brien, uh, who, uh, who is a 
Minneapolis resident said, this is just slavery by another name. So that's the second time in a mainstream or corporate press article we've heard somebody uh, refer to this as slavery uh, with the uh, woman from in Chicago, Illinois, I believe it was, who told Hillary Clinton that, you know, some are calling this modern slavery. Uh, finally, it says in a statement, uh, Swift County Commissioner Gary Hendricks counted the vote as a victory, urging Dayton and other legislators to keep the proposal on the table as a, and I quote, economic driver for the region. So this yeah. is, again, it's, it's just slavery, man. A pillar of the U.S. economy since what? 1775 or 76? Lazy as hell. You know, it's not limited to private prisons doing this for profit. Let's make sure we everybody understands that. Federal prisons and jails do the same thing. They keep the money rather than the private prison getting it. And they pay taxes to the federal government. These private private corporations pay taxes. All of it is evil. And what they do is they're presented with two choices. Apparently, they have a high crime rate. So rather than address the reasons for the high crime rates, which normally are involved in poverty or drugs or lack of education, rather than take that money and invest in that to making a change where you don't have a high crime rate, they exploit those people increase the crime rate further so they can fill these new prisons and create jobs for a primarily rural white community, which will be prison guard jobs and uh, jobs with technicians and construction jobs. And these jobs, some will last lifetimes. Food vendor contracts, uh, people that's uh, communications where they're going to gouge them for a Skype call or something. But Max, we do have have some uh, callers uh, on the line. We don't want to keep the callers waiting. Uh, welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. Do we have Stephanie on the line? Area code six one two and area code six five one. Your mics are open. We can hear you. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. I'm looking at you as my heroine of the day, man. You and the rest of your party that was there raising hell. Just making them aware that we see you. We know what you're doing. Yeah, we had to. Uh, yeah, we went down. Uh, it was a group of is a group of organizers. One, uh, Candace Montgomery from Black Lives Matter, and then these two uh, people, Catalina and Toya from Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is like faith interfaith, like social justice coalition. Myself and three other sisters from Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee were there, so that's who I went with. And yeah, we just had to uh, get in there. We went in there hearing people started kind of doing pop up disruptions, but then once this Darnella just started going off. And she was real passionate, and she just started speaking her truth, and then everybody started chanting, and then they had to shut down the meeting. So They had to shut it down. That child yeah. rain cheering you on over here. Yeah. Let, let me ask yeah. you a question. Uh, okay. Steph, why did you go to this event? <clears throat> so, um, like I said, I'm a part of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee out of the Industrial Workers of the World Union. So um, our goal is uh, organizing prisoners in, in an industrial union so they can fight for themselves. 
Um, so we have been organizing with folks from 3L about family movement, Free Virginia movement popping up, stuff going down in Texas. Like we're we're doing that kind of organizing. So when we heard about Appleton, we're like, this can't happen. <laughs> so we had to go down there and show our solidarity to, you know, the prisoners that we keep in touch with and are organizing with. So I even see at one point a congressman chimed in, uh, agreeing 100% that this is wrong at the, uh, what they're doing here with this prison pocket, this antithesis of American values. Yeah. I mean, and they're also looking at some sentencing reform uh, around, you know, Schedule 5 drug lockup and things like that. I'm not too familiar with the reforms, but they go hand in hand with reopening Appleton and filling those beds as soon as possible. So that's the problem. Can't right. have it. Right. And I, I see people mentioned as well the contracts, uh, 80 to 100 percent occupancy contracts for 25 years. Um, when did you become familiar with these contracts that they had? Because that's yeah. not necessarily common knowledge. When did you become familiar with that? Um, well, we've been researching GEO and CCA. So, you know, as soon as we started organizing, we started trying to get the facts together on both of the, you know, anything private prison, but uh, we, they also put together like an info pack. There's more information coming out about CCA that you can always look up. It shows you some hard numbers about, you know, what their facilities have done. And, you know, there's been plenty of lawsuits against their facilities. Ask Me Council 5 has had workers unionized in that system. And that's not necessarily the case that they would all be union jobs at Appleton, so that's, they came out, you know, in opposition, so, yeah, it's just, it's everywhere. Uh, Scotty, you have any questions? Um, yeah, I got a question for you, Max. Uh, do you, do, are you aware that there's another caller on the line? Um, I thought it was oh, another sorry, one I, of the... I was not aware of that. Yeah, uh, um, it's six five area code six five one. Everyone's mic is open, so I just want to let you know that Max six five one. Who do we have on the line? Are you talking to me? Yes. David. <laughs> oh, uh, I'm Darnella Wade uh, from from the. Uh, I'm from Welfare Rights Committee. But I'm the one who kinda led on to the meeting being shut down because I I think we had to speak louder than them even though they passed it. Well, yeah. they passed it as far as they could. could. So we, we know it's a long fight, but if we keep making a big deal out of it, then maybe we'll ultimately um, have some um, power over our legislation to move, maneuver them to spend money in proactive ways and not uh, things that are reactive. You know, right. you know, single mom, four children, three boys, one girl, all of 18 and up. I think that's very unfair that me, somebody that's involved in politics, will consciously go down there year after year and I see them turn down um, legislation regarding helping daycare, building daycare, down rec centers. Rec centers are jobs for kids. They have shut down after school programs and everything has to come through a third party as if 
the uh, low income or the working poor need these people to gouge out large amounts of money before they administer some form of, of, of help. You know, for, for me, the reason why I go down there, because in Health and Human Services, 82% of the cash goes to maintenance of effort. It goes to salaries. It doesn't go to families. 28% of the Minnesota um, federal uh, 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 money allotted for the poor is what's making it to the families. And then it's still that right there, the amount that they give us is so long unchanged, 30 years, it's hard to even compete. So when you get your piece of a welfare check, it's already spent. And yeah. anything to do with your life after that is not coming from the government. It's coming from wherever you can get it. And to me, that's 99% of the income of the black uh, of the black community. It's where you can get it. To me, if you call a super predator or you call the people that's trying to eat super predators, I think what you're doing, this movement of opening this prison, allows the super prey. That's what the, the super predators are the police then. Right. Let's really look at what's going on. 1,600 beds. $250 million and only 350 and I said it in the meeting, Caucasians. I said it. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to get the money, call them great jobs, and our families are going to remain broken, being broken up and sent into, into institutions for the sake of saving a small business. That's what made me fired up. The testimony for the prison was basically, yes, Let's sacrifice all of the rest of Minnesota to save a few, and that wasn't fair. Yeah. And Appleton is about four four hours away, so you talk about a community of people that are going to be that much more prone to recidivism because they can't get out and see their families and their friends. So that yeah. was a highlight that was brought up yesterday too. Right, so, and then in interesting reform. For some strange reason, uh, lately, uh, we've, in Minnesota, um, rewritten the Constitution or they made it unconstitutional for sex predators to be released upon us as far as I think that's something, uh, an issue for safety, uh, personal public safety. Why do the child predators, why do sex predators get to be out and released among us? And their return rate is, is worse. And what do they do? They destroy lives on the way back to their tap on the hand as if that is not a crime that should carry a long time yeah hold them a long time since the prison doesn't allow real rehabilitation i don't think they rehabilitated a, a, a bowl so i think if you have long sentences you give it to people that are actually laying their hands violently and destroying people's lives and minds those people, you could contend with them all day. But you know what instead we have in Minnesota? We have fathers who can't pay child support, who look like criminals. Now they're in jail over and over. How does that help them? How, how did being so poor and then going to jail and then if this is their, what is this, um, discipline, discipline for our, our fathers to put them in jail if you reform anything, try reforming that. You know what I'm saying? Just drop that. Maybe you'll have uh your 200, 500 beds you're looking for. 
stop with the petty crimes in our communities so we can put real criminals behind bars and make it worth our taxpayers' dollars because I'm in that taxpayer. I'm in that circle. I'm in that. I never let them exclude me. That's why I go down there. I never, ever let America forget I'm here. And I don't care as long as I'm here, I'm going to be at that Capitol. And I'm going to do it for my kids. Just like I do it free of charge, volunteer. I, I, I work. I take care of my kids. But I go down there and I pay attention to my future. Because when you read historically, if you wasn't dealing with legislation, you was just getting beat down. So if I'm going to just get beat down, I might as well deal with legislation. So the right fight on, is on. Right on. It's worth it. Well, see, this is what turns normal people into heroes, literally, because you're just doing something anybody could have done but chose to do it where others would not. And that takes an ounce of courage and it makes all the difference in the world. As I stated earlier, the explanation is very simple. None of this is by mistake. These are super predators, as you uh, pointed out. And they're looking to prey on your community. We find that most of these prisons are filled with nonviolent drug-related crimes. Even in 2014, with several states making billions and billions of dollars on marijuana laws, we find that 50% of all drug arrests were still for marijuana. And then we find that we have three times as many blacks being stopped and arrested for the same laws. So this what's filling our prisons today and it's our youth we're losing our, our kids are spending 10 15 20 years in prison for doing things that others are making millions of dollars doing legally exactly and you know like this was february my son was shot in south um uh, east east st paul minnesota and the kid that shot him was 17. i know they're like well if your son was just shot by a kid then why are you protesting opening a prison? I didn't say people that need to go to jail shouldn't go to jail. I said people that shouldn't be in jail should come out. There's two different things. I'm very focused. I have uh, ambition to save not just my kid. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that was a miss-up. He didn't die. He's, he's, he's alive. So I, I'm, that's the other part of my um, action is to be very aware that this needs to Stop. So I was trying to start a uh, hashtag Black Truth. That's just for us. So we can stop killing us and turn around and look at who our real enemy is. And that's the, that's the best way I could put it. If, if we just stopped for one year, if we stopped and became conscious for one year and paid attention to legislature, your whole life would change because you would stop looking at your common everybody that's on the same boat with you. They no longer are your adversaries. You get to get your mind right. You know what I'm saying? You shouldn't be pursued uh, going across the street diagonally. No, it's time to put a stop on all this police abuse. I mean, stop making petty crimes, something they could talk to us about. So when they approach us outside and we are not um, being uh, into anything that's criminal, you back up off of me because I'm not going to go to jail and I don't want to be put in your car because I'm telling you I have freedom of speech and I have the right to remain silent and I have the right to keep it moving, officer. You know what I'm saying? Something needs to, we need a buffer. That buffer is missing. And these police are out of control and the legislature just keep letting their pit bull dogs out on us and that's just how I look at it. And I'm not anti-cop. I'm just anti, I'm anti-slavery. You're either for slavery or against it. And we know that this is modern day slavery. 
It has to end. You said it so clearly. It has to end. It can't be reformed. We don't want to fix this stuff. We want to end this. And all we that money. Remove it out of our system. And then we could go and talk to you about opening prisons when all of us aren't in there. You know what I'm saying? And and think about it. The 13%, what did you say? 13, 13% is of the uh, Minnesota population is African American. And 51% of us is in jail. So that tells you one thing. The family is broken. If nothing else, you clearly see half of our families are broken. But you know what they're going to do? They're going to turn, they're going to tear down the uh, recreation centers and they're going to open up the jails. They're going to turn down legislation for daycare and they're going to push uh, uh, overtime for the police. Yeah. Okay. I kind of can see what's going on here. You know, it's just, you don't have to be any theorist to be alive. That's it. I'm just alive. I'm looking. I don't know if you're aware of it, but in Minnesota, the cost to incarcerate a single teenager for one year in their private facilities is $105,000. This is the type of money that they generate for their communities and into their coffers. That $105,000 could finance a teen youth center for the next three or four years. Right. And you know what else is going on in America? Since Clinton, Bill Clinton's welfare reform, families only get 60 months of assistance. So by the time any child is five years old, once they hit their six years, their mom or their father is not uh, disabled, the whole family is cut off assistance except for food stamps. So from Clinton to now, you can see why the numbers keep going up and up and up and up. And then America, I call it America's dirty little secret, is the welfare cutoff. They know it. They know that there are no children being taken care of in this United States. And 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 um, they uh, said in a meeting it cost sixteen hundred dollars per bed in the um, prison system in Minnesota. I guess that's the adult. Now you know what I told them, and it's eight thousand dollars a year for a family of four uh, with a cash assistance. And I know you are uh, denying those families and calling this a surplus. It's not a surplus. It's it's a uh, it's proof of neglect. That's what it is. And they cipher this money, cipher it, cipher it, cipher it. When they have a nice build-up, they build themselves a $90 million state office building. Yeah. Like we turn into the expendable uh, assets. Uh, yeah, there was they a, have, yeah. There's a quote about convict leasing from Jay Mancini in a book called One Dies, Get Another. And he says the only difference between convict leasing and slavery was that with convicts so plentiful, they were seen as disposable. And that's much how we look at us now and our communities as disposable. Yeah, and you know what makes us disposable? The high amount of number of immigrants allowed. When you really think about it, it's we go in jail and they take the job that nobody uh, really, really wants and nobody's pushing for $15 an hour, the, the fight for a better uh, quality of life stops when immigrants come in because when they reach America, that is the the great white hope. They made it. So they'll take the white castle jobs and they'll keep white castle jobs year and year after year and never make white castle accountable for their quality of lives. But we are 
the old slaves are tired, so they bring new immigrants in to replace us. And where they're going to put us is in jail. And that's how that works. It's an immigrant, I mean, it's a citizen replacement program. That's how I look at it. Because all you got to do is move me. All you have to do is move the fighter that's fighting for a better quality of life for somebody that's not going to fight at all. Right. And the private institutions will always seek slave labor. They'll seek right. the people who will do it for the cheapest. And often people who have no options in the matter, like prisoners. Mm-hmm. We have 37 states using the prison labor force as an employment force for commercial products, goods, and services. And as long as you make felons, felons, and then have them do all their time and then get out of jail and still have a felon label where they can't work, can't live in public housing, can't, can't they just get right. blocked. They're on their way back to jail. Why do they have to serve all this extensive Rockefeller drug charge, trumped up years, sentences? They serve their time and then they get out and they have to serve another kind of prison. They're yeah, not. Yeah. Shout out to Christopher Irving. Shout out to Christopher Irving out in Baltimore, who's running for council right now. He's a champion of those rights and has actually helped to move legislation into uh, Maryland, where convicts can now vote. As many as forty thousand are now available to vote. So shout out to Christopher Irving out in Baltimore. We hope he wins his seat on city council. Right now, look at the power that he's given the people. Once you are able to vote again, you go vote out people that voted 10 to 7 to keep private prisons in. You go get them out of there. Vote them gone. See, they're comfortable. It's nice to have a paycheck and no consequences for the lives you destroy. They need to be fired. And that's just how I look at it. And I'm going to keep up with their names because now I know what the Klan looks like uncovered. And I'm sorry, that's just what happened to us when we was there. It was bad. It was bad. It was like seeing someone beat. And then when they get up, you tell them, too bad, you got to get beat a little bit more. There was no mercy. And I'm telling you, they're ruled by ruthless ambition. And that that is scary. I have grandkids, and these people cannot continue to well, rule. This is why we have a program in a station like this where you can have unfiltered black voices talking about black issues. And we, we have to call this uh, in primarily a black issue because, as you mentioned earlier, the prison population being 51% African-American, we're finding that this is the case in every state in the union where you have as small as less than 1% of the population making up as much as 40% of the prison population. State after state, without fail, it is exactly the same in ex, uh, just different levels. Right, and then quotas need to go too. So I don't know if, if we can even make laws that have to do with, you know, just the no quota factor, but those, those gotta go. We cannot live off of what the police do to us and then go and give it all back to the state and call it an economy. That ain't right. It's not right. It is just not right. And we already have so many state projects we paying for under the cover. We already get money taken out of our uh, out of our checks before they're cashed. You know what I'm saying? Like, you guys are doing a lot to us. And then you're taking a lot from us. And then they have the power to say nothing is for us. That, and no, I can't live like that. Much and of no, what they take from us, huh? much of what they take from us won't even be seen in our lifetime. They're taking it from our children and our grandchildren. Uh, oftentimes, when you destroy one person's life, that affects the entire family for generations to come. 
Yep. And you know why? Because they never changed the laws that helped them harm us in the first place. So some of these laws is 200 years old. Yeah, I know it's comfortable for y'all to keep it like that. But it's very uncomfortable for us, that black skin we in. Y'all not, y'all not for it, and neither are your laws. And especially if they're 200, 100-year-old laws, they're pushing and pushing and pushing. There was nothing for us 100 years ago. So there's no law that is for us. We need to make new laws that block old laws, period. Absolutely. Well, we're gonna, we got to close out this segment. I do want to say something first, and then I want to give if my co-hosts want a chance to ask a question. Uh, allow them to do so, and then give you a chance to make some closing statements. But the question that I have at this point is, do you see this, first of all, as modern-day slavery? And I know this is a rhetorical question because you're going to say yes, but just for the sake of argument. Yes, I do. When you okay. herd, hurting, they're hurting us. Well, right in the U.S. Constitution, in the 13th Amendment, there's an exception okay. clause that allows for prisoners to do this. Maybe in Minnesota, with the assistance of Sister Nakima Levy Pounds, you could start a movement uh, to uh, put the proper language into the same constitution. I'm not familiar at this point with what Minnesota state constitution says about slavery, but we found that in almost every state there is an exception clause for those yeah, states itself. We have exception clause, ours too. Same thing. The exception uh, what for for yeah. slavery allowed yeah. for prisoners like Georgia for example allows slavery for contempt of court and in Vermont they allow for slavery for a vague term called delight as well as for debts uh, commercial debts so state by state we found that the state constitutions actually had language I got it, allowed for slavery yeah, uh, you use language. Been. To disallow slavery. Right. It's, it's Article you 1. Understand? It's Article yeah, 1 in the Minnesota um, Constitution in the Bill of Rights is Section 2, Rights and Privileges. No member of this state shall be disenfranchised or deprived or of any of the rights or privileges secured to any citizen thereof unless by the law of the land or the judgment of his peers. There shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in the state otherwise than as punishment for a crime of which the party has been convicted. So they have, in in more words, um, they just mirrored the 13th Amendment, which does allow for the continuation of slavery if they convict you of a crime, which has been going on since 1865. Right. Right there in your state constitution, it allows for slavery. So they're doing it legally. There needs to be a movement to remove that from your state constitution. That's one, that's definitely a way to look at it. Um, I know on the part of uh, incarcerated workers organizing committee, uh, it's something that was talked about in the early days and kind of ended up falling flat. So we decided to keep organizing the prisoners themselves, but that's a good point that our state constitution does reflect the rest. So I'm glad right, you right. pointed uh, Scotty, Johanna, any questions? No, I've been uh, listening. I've been listening to uh, to these warriors on the front lines, and <clears throat> I was reminded uh, in my inbox about uh, my comment just a couple of weeks ago, Max, where I was saying, "Where's these abolitionist sisters at?" <laughs> we were talking about the Women's Day, so I'm I'm just appreciative 
of uh, of of what you all are doing up there. And I mean, we can see the uh, the results of your works. I mean, it's making the news headlines, which is making more and more people aware. So salute to you on that. Um, if you heard me speaking on what happened in Seattle recently, and it's still ongoing up there with the folks up there fighting, you know, to the point of getting arrested and removed from these meetings, and the city still moving to uh, to vote these things in, even when the people have proposed uh, counter. Uh, proposed the idea to have actual youth uh, recreation centers. They had the funding lineup. They had it planned for what they would do instead of building uh, a way to incarcerate the youth. And they still dismissed that and had the people arrested and removed from the meetings. I just remind you that you know their tactics can change on a dime. They can uh, they can they can uh, you know pull whatever kind of little moves they want to pull, but but remain encouraged and uh, keep fighting and do what you got to do for the for the future. Indeed. Yeah. I want to thank, thank you, you for your service as well. I appreciate everything you're doing and your courage is an inspiration to us all. Continue to fight. Anything you'd like to leave us with? Any way we can help? A website or anything like that? Um, well, with me, I'm part of the Welfare Rights Committee. And for two years, um, we've been pushing the law to turn back on the fed Well, the federal law turned off the grants for children. We want them to turn them back on. And they refuse to give us a fiscal note, so they always act like we don't know how much money. Well, just turn back on the, you know, turn back on the grants, and we'll deal with the children when we get there, you know. So, and then we ask them to double the grants to compete with the cost of living. It's the gain bill, and that's where we at right now. But someone needs to sit down and write. You can write a bill well, as long as you got some people behind it to push it, and a senator to sign on and authorize it. We need to make slavery against the law. That way, private prisons don't understand the law and benefit from it. See, we're just not understanding the law and getting beat down by it. But yeah, we need to straight up prohibit slavery. That means there is no more backdoor dealing. And if it gets caught, then you know you are a plantation slave herder and you need to be dealt with in, the, in that kind of order. That's what it looked like to me. They need discipline. Indeed, indeed. Lives matter. They do know, they need, they need to know that because they will act like they don't matter. As long as you don't show up down there, they don't care. They don't care. They already don't care. But if you don't show up down there, that's just fine with them. So you might as well make your time and, and make your way down there and holler at the people that's making your life uncomfortable as an American citizen. Amen to that. Well, yeah. let me yeah. let me ask before y'all go, let me ask, are, are both of you uh, members of Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery Group on Facebook um, or, or uh, following us on the New Abolitionist radio page on Facebook? Because there was a uh, meme that was put out uh, uh, on the 21st that was telling us about, you know, this meeting in St. Paul. So, I mean, we, we can get the information out, you know, if you help us, you know, whether you inbox us, you know, Max, Scotty, and myself, or, uh, you know, join the group, Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery. This is an actionist group where we're able yeah. to mobilize people, you know, on a regional, on a local level in pretty quick time. So definitely, you know, I invite you to join us if you're not already members. And uh, let's keep pushing that information around and, and get more and more people, you know, to rise yeah. up. Nobody's gonna benefit from that but the black man the most. Y'all need to end your slave um, owners' property. You need to end that. End that legally. Stand up, take some time out, and cut their cords. You know what I'm saying? Legally. Do it legally. 
We got to right. fight for our side. Don't hear us. Do it legally. It's possible. We can do this. All we have yes. to do is have the courage to step forward and use our skills and abilities in whatever way we can, whether you be a lawyer or a baker, you can make a difference. Yep. And well, thank you, for, can, thank can you I for being that? here with us tonight. Thank you. Can I say real quick? Yes. Or um, if you, you can catch us at uh, Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. We're a committee of the IWW, which is Industrial Workers of the World. Um, I was just going to shout you out real quick because, uh, yeah, we got bridges across uh, with abolition. And right now we got uh, some Texas prisoners in our network. We just passed 770 union members that are incarcerated. So that's super exciting. But um, they, uh, there's prisoners in Texas that are going to start um, work stoppages early this April. So uh, definitely stay in touch with me because it's going that's down here. Yeah, that's a great yeah. plan. Organize the uh, prison laborers, no matter mm -hmm. what. Even if you're just sweeping your cell, you're still a laborer. Yeah. Right on, right on. <clears throat> Thank right. you. Appreciate it. Thank you so oh, much. <laughs> hey, guys, one more thing. That'll make them back up off of us. If you started um, making the the um, incomes in prison workable and then then get to send checks home, I bet you they'll back up off of who they put in jail. Yeah, yeah, that would put the core out of business. Child yep. support needs to be paid no matter where that man is, and if he in jail for not paying child support, why do he got to work for a private prison? See, we're trying to put you core out of business. How did that work for the child to come put her father in jail? And now he working for this taskmaster for 25 cents in slavery and send the checks home to the kids. How does that? How does that work for y'all? They ain't going to do it. You know why? Because you're going to dig yourself out of a poverty sooner or later. And that is not what they're helping us with. You better believe us being at 200% below the poverty level is the objective. And that's why they won't change. And they know right. that you're down there, so they're going to open the prison so they have somewhere when they're done chasing you to put you. White supremacy can't exist without black oppression. Isn't that what you say there, uh, Johanna? Yeah. That's right. That's the rule right there. That's the rule. It's it's uh it's got to be based. It's the currency of white supremacy. Is this uh is black criminality? Is is uh you know non whites and are criminal and and less than and basically deserve to be rounded up and be used in this manner. And then the money that comes from behind all that is what fuels the fuels the machine. It can't stand without it. So y'all doing the right thing and standing up against this. Once again, thank you for coming on. Amen. Amen. Peace, sisters. Yes. Thank you for helping yes. us close out Women's History Month uh, with something special from the two of you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back on the other side, we're going to talk about some of these industries that are in threat of going extinct. Like we're talking about making unicorn extinct. And we'll tell you about unicorn when we come back. Uh, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio here with Johanna and Elia, Max Parkers, and Scott Reed. We'll be right back after these messages. Brothers and sisters! Brothers and sisters! I don't know what this world is coming to!
Brother Elliot, host of Time for an Awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Salute to our guests who was here briefly with us to share their stories. Um, heroines, both of them, and all of them that were included. Uh, indeed, they were talking about making certain industries go extinct. Um, Unicor right now is one of the largest privately owned corporations. It's owned by USA Incorporated, and they have a revenue uh, of about $900 million a year. They are specifically uh, using prison slave labor to make uh, goods and services, provide services and products. And most of your government uh, furniture, or even as far as up to uh, making parts for missiles, is done through Unicor. But they also have contracts with commercial industries as well. And if the, the prisoners were to be unionized, where they would have to guarantee them a minimum amount of pay for their labor, a place like Unicor would no longer be necessary. And Unicor was the next step after chain gangs. We had the convict leasing, chain gangs, and then we had Unicor, which was founded in 1934. Okay, well, there's another industry that's worried about going bankrupt. Uh, Your Honor, if you want to pull that one up, man, you can manage it too. It's kind of a long story. Just tell them what you want to tell them about it. But basically, bounty hunters are scared to death now. Uh, they're putting out articles about, you know, they're concerned about losing their industry. And in case you didn't know, only two nations in the world actually use bounty hunters. Every other country sees them as slave catchers, immoral, unethical, and illegal. But here in the U.S., it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Abolitionists are trying to put you out of business. Count on it. Johanna? Am I on mute? Or I'm sorry? Step away, Max. I think you had to step away, Max. Oh, okay. All right. Well, no problem. Let me pull it up for a second here. Um, This comes from Ozzy.com, and it's titled, The American Bounty Hunter Becomes an Endangered Species. And I'll read some of it to you. It starts with, it's just 4 p.m., and the late afternoon clouds are growing dark with rain, east wind, and sharp tongue. Tushina Crum, 31 years old, has spent a whole day with her petite Pierce junior partner, uh, Liana Zamudio, pounding on doors in search of a man we'll call Daniel. The woman finally had a promising lead. Surrounded by the Red Rock Canyons of rural Colorado, what the hell is this, a novel or a story? Surrounded by the Red Rock Canyons of rural Colorado, we drive to the next town over where we turn down a series of side streets before coming to a stop. Crumb straps a bulletproof vest over her white V-neck T-shirt, and a black SUV pulls up behind us. Three baroquely tattooed men of varying ages, each clad in an all-black and wearing bulletproof vests as well, step out. Our backup has arrived. Together, we start toward the gray aluminum shed that's been converted into a motorcycle shop. Big Daddy and SWAT who is carrying what looks like a shotgun, these are nicknames of bounty hunters, apparently, like dog, who is carrying a shotgun, but supposedly shoots only rubber bullets, 
head around to the back in case Daniel tries to run. Old timer trails behind the ladies as they walk up the driveway, white, their right hands poised above the Glocks under waistbands, right next to the hot pink cat handcuffs. I follow, conscious that I'm not wearing a bulletproof vest. In the garage are three biker dudes who look simultaneously intimidating and apprehensive of the visitors, who from the looks of them could be police or thugs. Turns out they're neither. For this close-knit crew, bounty hunters today is just another day on the job. Daniel, just another degenerate on the run. Wow, degenerate on the run. But in many ways, it's more. It's an adrenaline fix. It's a source of pride, purpose of power. It's a way of life. And it's on the very edge of extinction. You know what? I don't want to read this guy's novel any further. I'm going to end it right there with it's on the verge of extinction because it is. Bounty hunters are not chasing degenerates. They're chasing people who were too damn poor to pay the cash bails that our Department of Justice just warned the entire country that they have to stop because it's unconstitutional. These Hmm. scum have been living off the lives of people for far too long, and it's about time that they went out of business. What say you, Scotty? Well, I don't know, Scotty. I don't know, Scotty is, is on uh, on the mic at this moment, but I'll just say it just it disgusts me even more. This uh, this situation, what these people represent. Now that I started watching the uh, the the new TV series uh, Underground, it just makes it that much more clear when you look at where this tradition even started from, uh, hunting down fugitive quote unquote fugitive slaves. I mean, people that are free that you kidnap and throw into slavery who escape from that situation into freedom again. And you call them fugitive slaves and you write these laws and you say that they're illegally escaping to freedom. And this is where bounty hunters originated from. Right. And they and they follow that same tradition still to this day. As much as we are telling you we are abolitionists, this is an abolitionist movement and we are here to end modern day slavery. The people that they're chasing right now are, it's, I mean, it's all a continuation of what we've already been going through, people. Jesus. A continuation of it. Um, it's a damn shame that we have slave catchers in our midst and we're worried about whether or not they lose their jobs. Um, the Department of Justice is on our side. They've confirmed what we've been telling you now for years that many have been saying about this. And uh, these as I said, parasites live off of the suffering of others. They don't even, they're not even required to have licenses for what they do. Uh, in certain instances, they run across people and they shoot innocent people, have killed innocent people while running up across state lines, across borders, into people's houses, like they're freaking SWAT teams, as the author was describing. But they're not SWAT teams. They're just some fools who got a gun and decided to become bounty hunters. They need to go. Just like Unicor needs to go. There are many industries that make their profit and their money and their livelihood off slavery. And every one of those industries has to end along with slavery. We have to pull it up roots and all to take it out of our system and our social environment to the point where we can finally get some freedom from oppression. 
Well, there you have my rant. <laughs> I guess we're going to get into the next story. Are you still with me, Hunter? Yeah, I'm here. We, we can tie all of this together. We've got a few extra minutes tonight. So, fortunately, we may be able to get into the jail areas. Well, well Max, uh, excuse me, Max. Max, yes, sir. yeah, yeah, yes. me and Johanna uh, was talking mm-hmm. on, on Facebook. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. I'm sorry, but we, we need to do keep it at right about two hours, man, just based on the stats. You know, uh, we don't want uh, to, uh, let's just say, uh, blast people with too much information because of the attention deficit that we know is out there. We're not trying to say that about our listeners, but we know, you know, for the most part, they tune in for just under two hours. So if we need to leave something on the cutting room floor, we'll just continue to share that on um our facebook page but uh the abolition just to get y'all heads up the abolitionist profile is already recorded so when we oh, get okay to that's fantastic well we've only got one more story and then we'll skip the jail parts uh vocally and we'll share those stories on our facebook page new abolitionist radio make sure you always follow the page as we're doing the radio show so you can have the dual experience and, and read the things that we're speaking of as we discuss them and maybe even call in and chime in on them. The next and our final story for this evening before our next segment will be the federal prosecutors decline to charge police in 96% of civil rights violations. You heard it. 96% of civil rights violations get thrown right out the door. They don't even get bothered with. Okay, that's over a period of 15 years, right? Excuse me? That's over a period of 15 years, which covers the um, uh, Clinton administration, the Bush administration, and the Obama administration. Yes, over 20 years, from 1995 to 2015. Yes, yes, another another uh, another human rights violation, (laughs) another another uh, uh, joke and hypocrisy that America represents when we go out like like you said, Obama in Cuba talking about human rights violations, civil rights violations, blah blah blah. Him even being a, a what they call a Nobel Peace Prize winner and all. I mean, so it's just hypocrisy on top of hypocrisy all the time. We need to be here fixing what's going on in America. Um, it says an investigation by the Pittsburgh Tribune Review revealed that federal prosecutors declined to bring charges against police in 96 percent of civil rights violation claims. Between 1995 and 2015, federal prosecutors did not pursue 12,703 potential civil rights violations out of 13,233 cases. After going through 3 million records from the United States Department of Justice, they found this. That comes out to an average of about 26 cases nationwide each year. <clears throat> it said uh, from Vice News, it said the same couldn't be said for other kinds of cases against non-police defendants. The investigation found that federal prosecutors declined to bring charges in only 23% of other types of criminal cases. The, st- the stunning findings provide the hard nationwide data to back up one of the fundamental claims driving the Black Lives Matter movement, that police officers are rarely held accountable when faced with allegations of brutality or misconduct and whose victims more often than not are black and Hispanic. A geographical analysis found the federal prosecutors in the South are actually more likely to charge police with a civil rights violation than anywhere else in the country. In fact, one U S attorney's 
office in northern Mississippi charged the least of 24 civil rights cases more than any other office. Of those 24, 20 resulted in convictions. Wow. So if you actually take these crooks to court, you can convict them. I just want to point out that that may be a misrepresentation. In the South, there are more violations, and that's why there's more prosecutions. (laughs) Right, right. You're sure right about that. So, yeah, yeah, once again, wow, we're up against it. It says, uh, when asked uh, the Fraternal Order of Police National Executive Director, Jim Pascoe, said, Maybe they're not taking the cases because they're not good cases. It could be that 96% of the time, do you know how many false complaints are made against police officers? Piece of shit. Yet in the past few years alone, we've seen incident after incident of law enforcement officers violating the civil rights of civilians. A Justice Department spokesperson said that they take any allegation of law enforcement misconduct seriously and will review those allegations when they are brought to our attention in about 4% of those cases. So there you go. That's and these people, information. Yeah, man, these people don't even, I don't even think these people, I think they lie to you about whether they standing in front of you. If you, I mean, I mean, I just don't know. Do they even know how to tell the truth? I, I mean, I, I feel sorry for their children. I feel sorry for their families, for their husbands and wives and for the people in the community around them. I mean, these are some of the most dishonest people you will ever meet in this walk of life. All these people involved in this, these damn FOP, National Director Pasco, these these prosecutors, these people, spokespersons from the Justice Department, these are all just lying sacks of, of you know what? They right. just all lying on top of lying on top of lying and steady collecting paychecks. Not a one of them missed a, missed a check in their entire career. Not a one of them has felt any kind of pressure about losing their job, about, about you know, things changing and, and making it hard on their lives, altering their lifestyle. They've come straight out of college, went right into this professional career they got, found themselves a niche to exploit the community and treat people like crap and run them in the ground and kill them, incarcerate them, whatever, and then cover up all of the machine of slavery that is in America right now. That's what they do for a living. And they stand and sit up here and give you these sound bites and these little pieces for news stories. This flat out ball face lies. These people are gonna just poof and burn up in the, and turn into ashes one day. They lie so damn much. <laughs> you know they say twenty six cases a year. Uh, police are charged for civil rights violations. Now this is just March. You could type in the search words "police violate civil rights 2016." <laughs> and get more than 26 cases right now. Right. They're talking about the ones that make it all the way to the federal prosecution level. Do you know how intricate and long and drawn out the process would be for something to happen to you as a local citizen here in your local municipality, and you get that case taken all the way up the line to where it gets to be a federal case? You know how long and how arduous that is to even get that to happen? And they had 13,000 cases over 20 years and only prosecuted, only prosecuted 4% of that. 4%. That's a criminal conspiracy. That's, a, that's an ongoing criminal conspiracy. We talk about all of these different stats, and, you, you know, they clearly show you what the problems are and who's causing the problems and why the problems exist. When we tell you things like 97% of all federal cases uh, end in a plea bargain, 
or that 95% of all people incarcerated right now have never seen a trial. These are major constitutional violations where just a sliver of their rights are left. 4%, 3% of the people actually get to enjoy these rights and privileges guaranteed by the Constitution. That's, there's nothing left when you've only got 3 and 4%. It's a damn shame. Anyway, we got to keep it moving, as Scotty said. You have the information there. Check it out on New Abolitionist Radio if you want to get more into detail on it. What we're going to do next is go into our next segment, which is our abolitionist, uh, our 21st century writer of... Uh, I think, Max, Max, the uh, abolitionist profile is only a, about a minute and a half long. You know, some of these people, it's not a whole lot of information, but... We do, you can share that last story because you wrote that there was important information about jails that came out. So take a couple of minutes to share that before uh, we move into the uh, Underground Railroad Rider and then we can run that uh, profile. Okay, okay, well, great. Uh, one of the stories that came out is the inmate deaths on the rise in jails where we've seen this over and over and over again, from Sandra Bland to the young 16-year-old girl. Uh, do you guys remember what her name was? They died in jail now, and, and they're uh, not charging anybody with murder, but they're doing an investigation. It says here, uh, and it's a story from CBS News, where it says the number of inmates who died in state prisons and local jails in the United States increased for the third year in a row in 2013. So three years in a row up to 2013, according to the report from the Federal Bureau of Justice Statistics. The total number of inmate deaths that year was 4,446. Is the highest since the agency began. Did we lose Max or did y'all lose me? Uh, we must have lost Max. Okay. Yeah, we lost Max, so he'll be calling right, back he'll, in. He'll get back in. We'll uh, <clears throat> we'll have to try to pick up where he was, where he uh, left it off there. Uh, as he was saying, though, the inmate death uh, rate is on the rise, and we know that. And um, as he was asking me or asking, you know, what are some of the names? I and mean, we know just even last year, as he mentioned Sandra Bland, and we had uh, we talked about Joyce Cornell, uh, what last week or two weeks ago uh, on this program. Uh, she died. These were all we had five sisters that died in the month of July, just in one month last year. So, I mean, of course, these numbers are continuing to go up. And we reported um, last year, 2015, we started off the year reporting on the number of deaths in prison. So this it went from the prisons where we were talking about, you know, uh, Darren Rainey talking about uh, uh, Jordan uh, Arparo and the, the brother that they coded in the in the mace to where when they moved his dead body away from the wall, it was an outline there about an inch thick of just mace where they had emptied all these cans on, the, on his body or whatever. So we've been talking about the prison deaths uh, for, you know, the last couple of years, and now it's gone down, trickled down to the jail deaths. And as we talked in one of the stories earlier, we highlighted how in Minnesota, wasn't it Minnesota, I think, where they were saying, or uh, Mississippi, rather, where uh, – 2400 the overcrowding is so prevalent throughout the country that they're taking people out of the prisons and putting them in the county jails and now you see people dying in the county jails and so it should start to be a clear picture for people to be able to see what's going on they kill them on the plantations kill them in the prisons, and as the prisons are overcrowded before they can get new ones built or get expansions or what have you they move them into the local jails into the county jails under the sheriff's jurisdiction 
and then the people still end up dying. They still don't get medical care. They still get abused, raped, what have you, and murdered while in custody. And like I said, even to the point of last year in July, in one month alone, we had all five of these sisters, Renetta Turner, Joyce Cornell, we know Sandra Bland, uh, on and on with these sisters. So, I mean, uh, uh, Kendra Chapman, um, Alexis McGovern, Rakina Jones. I mean, these are people, these are real people that were not even found guilty of doing anything. <laughs> they were detained. They were stopped, questioned, frisked, uh, 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 kidnapped. And they ended up dead while in custody. So this is a, a, a serious issue. So back to what uh, Max was saying, though, I don't know if we, if we get, is he back or? Yeah, I'm back. Go ahead and keep going, brother. Okay. Uh, I'm not exactly sure where you left right off there, but I'll just re repeat this number. The total number of inmate deaths that year was 4,446, the highest since the agency began tracking in 2007. Uh, the previous year, there was 131 fewer deaths in state and prisons and local jails. In 2013, the deaths in the U.S., uh, state prisons and local jails, more than a third, 34% were due to suicide, according to the report. All of these sisters that I just named off that died in July last year, they all got reported as suicide. So this is some BS, man, that we know that they've been doing the whole time. In fact, our uh, abolitionist sister, Asada Shakur, told us uh, in, in her autobiography about what they do to people in custody. Uh, uh, from her autobiography, in prisons, it's not at all uncommon to find a prisoner hanged or burned to death in his cell. No matter how suspicious the circumstances, these deaths are always ruled suicide. They are usually black inmates considered to be, quote-unquote, a threat to the run orderly running of the prison. They are usually among the most politically aware and socially conscious inmates in the prison. And we know Sandra Bland was politically aware and socially active. So, you know, we, we, we're not at all fooled by any of these, these uh, statistics and any of their lies. Um, says the report comes as two high-profile jail deaths have made headlines across the country on July 15th. It's almost Sandra Bland. Um, and uh, a another case, also August 3rd, uh, New York State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman announced that his office is investigating the death of Ray Ned Turner, who was found dead in Mount, in a Mount Vernon, New York, holding cell. She was arrested two days earlier on a so-called shoplifting lifting charge. Um, it said that they also found that the increasing number of elderly inmates has contributed to the rise of deaths and incarceration as well. In state prisons, the percentage of, dis of decedents who, uh, age 55 or older has increased by an average of 5% annually since 2001. But see, they won't let these people go. They just continue to collect the money for them, even though they know they're too old to do any damn thing but sit up in there and die. By 2013, more than half of 50, more than half, which is 57% of prisoner deaths were of inmates 55 or older. That much easier to prey upon. And just say, oh, well, it was natural, natural causes. Nearly a quarter of all jail deaths occurred in California and Texas, according to the report. 80% of jails nationwide reported no deaths at all. So California, again, highly overcrowded in another system that's compromised where the prisons are sending, sending inmates down into the jail level. So, you know, this is a system, man, and it's all completely dysfunctional. You know, there's something that uh, they say in here that confirms what I've been proposing now for a few years. You know, in 2015, we had 1,200 deaths by police. And I would say that if you think 1,200 is a lot by cops in the jails and prisons, it's got to be at least double, if not quadruple that. And that's exactly what it is. They're talking about 4,446 deaths. And a third of those are by suicide, which tends to be their favorite excuse for things. Uh, suicide, like Sandra Bland, as you mentioned, for instance, whom everybody knows was not suicidal. But apparently a lot of people commit suicide in prison. It sounds feasible, doesn't it? 
So yeah. now the guts are on the rise. There's other two other stories. I'm not going to read them in detail. I just want to give you the uh, gist of them. You can read them on New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, the one says that releasing low-level offenders did not unleash a crime wave in California. Remember, everybody was so scared that if you start unleashing prisoners, how do you say unleashing, like they're animals on a leash, if you start letting them go, these innocent, nonviolent offenders, you wouldn't have a crime wave. Uh, wave. Apparently, it says here, there's some fear that reducing sentences for nonviolent crimes and letting low-level offenders back on the streets, key components of prison reform, could produce a new and devastating crime wave. Such dire predictions were common in 2011 when California embarked on a massive experiment in prison downsizing. But five years later, California's experience offers powerful evidence that no such crime wave is likely to occur. Now, all of you from the 1800s who have been asking Max, the Max, I'm sorry to cut in, man, but we're running a short on time. Okay. All right. We're running short. You got me all confused tonight, man. All right. We're running short on time. Check out the other stories on New Abolitionist Radio. Let's go directly into our, uh, should we skip the rider and go into the profile? No, let's do the writer and, and the profile. All right. Let me pull up the writer here. Just give me a moment to uh, get it from the page. And now I should have it up. Pardon our confusing today. We had a, a little bit extra time, but we didn't know quite how much. All right. Here we go. This week's rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad tells this tragic story of Daryl Hunt. In the morning of 6 February 2004, the eyes of Winston-Salem fell upon Daryl Hunt, who had calmly waited for this day, uncertain if it would ever arrive. By noon that afternoon, Judge Anderson Cromer would exonerate the 38-year-old inmate for his role in the 1984 murder of Deborah Sykes. But first, he listened to her mother. Evelyn Jefferson, who berated him for a ruling that would set, a free, set free a guilty man. Before Hunt left the courthouse, he turned towards Jefferson, his voice warbling with emotion, and told her, I feel the pain you felt. Starting that day, Hunt devoted his life to reforming a criminal justice system that had stripped him of nearly two decades of his life, becoming a globally known advocate for the wrongfully convicted with a similar kind of grace he showed Jefferson. Last weekend, the 51-year-old advocate was found dead in a friend's locked pickup truck with a gun and what police have deemed a suicide. Physical evidence found inside the vehicle, as well as other investigative findings thus far, is indicative of Daryl Hunt having suffered a self-inflicted gunshot wound, Winston-Salem police said in a statement. The police force that found him was the same one that arrested him 32 years ago for the rape and murder of Sykes a 25-year-old copy editor for the Winston-Salem Sentinel. When attorney Mark Ravel first met Hunt, he was struck by the teenager's, teenager's peaceful demeanor and unfettered willingness to prove his innocence at no matter the cost. I was scared, Ravel recalls. Everything that had been in the media, the police said they had had all these, these witnesses, and I assumed they had to die. And our job was to save him from the death penalty. In my 35 years practicing law, there's never been this suddenness of me being convinced of innocence as I was in that first hour with Daryl, 
1985, Hunt was convicted of first-degree murder, but thanks to a lone juror, was spared the death penalty. However, a higher court overturned his conviction on a te technicality, granting his freedom in 1989. Faced with retrial in a rural Catawba County, prosecutors offered a plea bargain to Hunt that would have set him free. Rather than admit guilt, Hunt turned down the deal, leaving his fate in the hands of an all-white jury, which went on to convict him in 1990. Four years later, DNA testing found Hunt's semen did not match the evidence collected from the crime scene. But it wasn't until a series of appeals and another DNA test in December 2003 linked the crime to Willard Brown, who later confessed that Hunt was released. The Christmas Eve Hunt, uh, that Christmas Eve, Hunt signed papers for his release and left Forsyth County Jail for good. Hunt, who received more than $2 million in compensation from the city and state, immediately began to speak out about his wrongful conviction after his exoneration. Stephen Deere, executive director of People of Faith Against the Death Penalty, believed he had every right to retreat from the public spotlight. Instead of leaving Winston-Salem behind, Hunt stayed so that no one would forget what happened. His face was a reminder to the people who put him away, Revel says. Certain district attorneys would cross the street rather than face him. Everything would go quiet when he walked into a courtroom. And there you have the story of Brother Hunt, Daryl Hunt today. And we here at Abolitionist, New Abolitionist Radio salute you, brother. Peace and rest in peace. Salute. Rest in peace, brother. Wow. The story goes on. Please take the time to read it. It's inspiring, and it's sad. Well, there you have our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad here on New Abolitionist Radio. Our next segment is our Abolitionist in Profile. Scotty Reed. You there, sir? Julia Ward Howe was born in New York City on May 27, 1819. She died on October 17, 1910 in Portsmouth, Rhode Island. During her life, she became a writer, penning several books, and worked with her husband, Samuel Gridley Howe, as the co-editor for the abolitionist newspaper, The Boston Commonwealth. Julia Howe is known most for writing the lyrics to the iconic song, Battle Hymn of the Republic, said to have been inspired after visiting Union Army troops during the American Civil War. She was highly active in the women's suffrage movement, which was known to collaborate with the parallel slavery abolitionist movement prior to the Civil War. The Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society, for an example, was active between 1833 and 1840. It was an interracial abolitionist organization for women with its headquarters in Boston, Mass. After her father's death, Howe moved to Boston. In 1843, she married Samuel Greeley Howe, a doctor who was also a teacher for the blind. The couple went on to have six children. New Abolitionist Radio salutes abolitionist Julia Ward Howe. Salute. Salute. There you have it. Another poet abolitionist and uh, our last uh, woman abolitionist for the month of March and Women's History Month. Salute to all the women out there fighting hard and strong for freedom's sake. Indeed. 
Well, All right, fellas. Well, another another productive program. I guess we about ready to wrap it up here. Yes, yeah, indeed. Um, extra minutes Yeah, I'll go into my final comments. I just want to say that I'm pleased, and it's evidence that the wider abolitionist movement, just by changing the language we use in referring to what for so long we've been calling mass incarceration, but now you know twice I've heard people uh, engaging politicians and correctly uh, identifying the problem as slavery. And so that occurred when, you know, the young the young woman uh, asked Hillary Clinton about it um, and uh, told her what the problem is, being modern slavery. And, you know, at the uh, Minneapolis uh, public hearing uh, in opposition to opening it up or leasing some slave quarters, you know, from uh, the Creation Corporation of America, we heard one of the protesters there also refer to it as slavery, calling it slavery by another name, which there's actually a book and a documentary out there about it that people can watch for free on YouTube or PBS, you know. So it is slavery. It's, I, I don't even know where there's an argument about that. And so I think... Um, you know, the abolitionist movement is doing a good job in at first, you know, getting people to correctly identify the problem um, and um, taking it from there. Thanks. Amen. Indeed, indeed. I just want to uh, remind folks or inform uh, some others that may not have known about it. We circulate in a uh, petition and this is, you know, not directly slavery. But it is uh it is freedom related. It is a uh, uh, you know part of this the dysfunction of the system we got in place. I'm gonna put the link to this uh, petition that Scotty has shared to uh, Black Talk Radio Network uh, page as well as I think also to the move to abolish 21st century slavery, if I'm not mistaken. But petition going to investigate voter fraud and uh, voter suppression in Arizona. I mean these are things that we're seeing that are part of systems that are also benefiting modern day slavery. I mean we we got some people that have the mind and the ability to, to see what's going on on a, on a, on a real close, uh, maybe smaller or local level. We got some that are able to see large systems and want to react and, and counteract those systems and what they're doing to destroy us totally, you know, head to toe. So this with the, with the voter issues, um, we saw in Florida recently where they revealed how, you know, they had, uh, had, uh, changed the districts to reflect bodies that are in certain districts that should be, you know, represented by people that who, who could vote, but there are actually people who are incarcerated who could not vote. So they're forever playing with the system to get the voters disenfranchised, to get people in a position where they cannot uh, make changes happen through the vote. So that's illegal and that's not playing fair. So if you're going to say on one hand, look, if you want to fix it, vote, well, at least let's make sure that the voting means something. So in Arizona right now, there's a petition going to the White House, uh, whitehouse.gov website that uh, is titled Investigate the Voter Fraud and Voter Suppression in, in Arizona that occurred on 3-22 of 2016. Uh, we'll, I'll post that on the New Abolitionist Radio, also on my personal page. So look for that and uh, sign that petition. And let's, let's bring more and more light to uh to the rotten elements of our system uh, they say light is the sunlight is the is a is a disinfectant so let's put all these lies to the light peace to the abolitionist death to the oppressed amen to that um want to thank our callers today for calling in uh and all the people who share information with us on a regular basis as scotty said we see the fruits of our labor bearing fruit just in the national conversation which brings me to what i want to end with it's called occam's razor 
And Occam's Razor, uh, written as Occam's Razor, and in Latin, Lex Personamone, which means law parsimony, is a problem-solving principle devised by William of Occam, 1287 to 1347, who was an English Franciscan friar and scholar, scholastic philosopher and theologian. And what he said was entities should not be multiplied unnecessarily. In layman's terms, it means keep it simple, stupid. If you see it and it looks like slavery, it acts like slavery, it works like slavery, there's no reason for you to start dividing it into de different compartments, simply address it as slavery. And remember that abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace. I got so much trouble on my mind, refuse to lose. Here's your ticket. Here the drama get wicked. Yeah.